1: opens the scroll he reads this text from isaiah he closes rolls back up the scroll he sets it down he goes and he takes his seat and he says today understand this what you just read has been fulfilled in your hearing here i am i have come to bind up the brokenhearted if your heart is heavy if your heart is weighed down If you feel like your heart is broken and shattered to pieces, understand this, that Jesus himself took that scroll and he read that and he applied it to himself and he says this to us today, I have come to bind up, to mend, to set straight your broken heart. If you will just bring him the pieces, he will put them back together. This is why he came. Proclaim liberty to the captives, preach good news to the poor and to bind up your broken heart. Whatever that broken heart is from, self-inflicted or someone else has done that to you, God is there to bind up your brokenness. Again, this healing can't happen unless we're willing to come to the Lord in humility and in a spirit of repentance. Why do I harp on this idea of repentance so much? This is why. If someone who's struggling with liver disease goes to their doctor And because of years of hard living, their liver is just shot. Their liver is destroyed. And the doctor looks at the person and says, the only hope for you is that you would receive a new liver. You need a liver transplant in order to survive. Now, is that doctor going to give that patient a liver if that patient is still out living in the world and drinking and using and living that lifestyle of addiction? No, why? Because even if you replace the liver, they're still not healed. And Jesus says, You got to leave that old life if you want to come and be healed. I can't do anything for you until you surrender that old life and you come and let me give you newness. The doctor's not going to waste that liver on a patient that's going to go right back into the old life. And some of you, Jesus would look to you today and say, You're not ready, you're not serious. Understand his heart though. His heart can be found here in 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing, not willing. It's not his desire that any should perish or suffer in their sin, but that all should reach what? Repentance. God wants every single one of you to repent. And sometimes we get this idea stuck in our heads that God is this this stern judge seated up upon his throne and he's just waiting for us to mess up. And the moment we mess up, that he's gonna punish us like there's gonna be a rod of lightning that's gonna come down and zap us and zap us of our strength and destroy us. And we look to God as a God that's always waiting to bring and levy punishment or wrath or heartache, but that is not our God. The verse in Peter says, God is not willing. He doesn't want any one of us to suffer in our sin. He wants all of us to come to repentance. He wants to give us all, not a new liver, but a new heart. When my children were little, they had this bad habit. And understand, I live like way out in the country, right? And I'm surrounded by fields. And because I'm surrounded by fields, these fields have mice, Right? And so when my kids were little, they'd have this issue where they would take little snacks and stuff and they'd hide these little things in their room thinking that they were really smart, right? And they'd have this stash, like, you know, like when your kids have Halloween, they go and they bring in all this Halloween candy and they keep a little stash in the room. Well, my kids would hide these stashes of food in the corners of their room or under their bed and things like that. And then in the middle of the night, they'd wake up and they'd say, oh no, there's mice, there's a mouse in my room, right? It doesn't matter how many times I warn them, don't take food into your room because you're going to attract the mice, right? They would do it anyway. And guess what? The mice would show up. Now, as their father, was I waiting for them to mess up? Was I just waiting for them to take that food into their room? And as soon as they, I saw the food was in their room, I said, you know what? I'm gonna teach them a lesson. I'm gonna unleash some mice in their room. This will finally teach them. No, that's not my heart as a father. I was only telling them the consequences of their sin. I wasn't levying the consequences, I was warning them. But listen to me, friends. How many of us have allowed mice into our heart because we haven't been listening to the warnings of the Lord? He says, Don't dabble in that. Stop watching that. Stop talking with that person. Move away. Just, you have to flee from that sin. Don't let that sin tear you down or keep you, and we're letting mice in because we're not heeding the warning, right? It's just the consequences of our answer. God didn't send a lightning bolt. God didn't send the mice. We allow the mice in. repent, repent. Turn away from that. God wants so much more for you. He doesn't want you to suffer in your sin. So we see in this, God's compassion. He has a heart to restore. He has a heart to watch us repent. He wants us to cry out for him. But now, secondly, we're going to look at the people's condition. Look at what it says here. I know we're still in verse 1, but it'll get faster towards the end. Right? It'll get faster towards the end. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits, they raid outside. They do not consider that I remember all their evil, and now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad, and princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. Here's the condition of the people. It says, their iniquity is before me. Their their iniquity is there. It's like a beacon. It's shining. You cannot hide their iniquity. And, And there are three general stages when we talk about sinfulness in our lives. And I want you to write these down because I think it's important that we understand what the Bible is referring to when it calls us out. So the first that I want you to write down is the word sin. Sin means to miss the mark. It means to fall short. It means to transgress or trespass against the Lord, all right? And so that can happen, and we're all sinners. This happens to us every day, but there's a deeper level of sin than just that. Again, sin means, man, I, I messed up. I didn't do things right. I failed miserably, but you know what? I'm going to pick myself up, and I'm going to move on, all right? So there's a sin, but then there's also transgression. If you write that down, write down the word transgression, Transgression is a deeper level of sinfulness because it says, I know that that is sin, but I'm going to do it anyways, right? Have you ever told your children, whatever you do, do not touch, dot, dot, dot. I, I, have a, I shared this story before, but I have a, a scar on my thumb to this day because my dad came home, he put his knife on the nightstand, and he said, whatever you do, do not touch that knife. And guess what I wanted to do more than anything in the world at that moment? Is I wanted to touch that knife and I have the scars to show for disobeying my father to this day. Okay, so there's sin, which is I missed the mark, but then there's transgression, which is an intentional trespass. Against the Lord. You know, you understand that you can trespass on someone's property, but you can be kind of innocent about it, right? I didn't realize that that was someone else's property. I didn't realize that that belonged to somebody else. I went across by mistake. But transgression means you know that it belongs to somebody else and you're going to go anyway. Does this make sense? Now, there's a third level of sinfulness if you write this down, and it is this word that we're looking at today iniquity. And this word iniquity means a deep rooted sinfulness that has no regard for repentance or the grieving that it causes the heart of God. It's a hardness of heart. It's a callousness, right? So most of us in this room, we're not monsters, right? I mean, when when we grieve God's heart, when we sin against the Lord, we feel some sort of conviction. We feel some sort of heaviness about that. But when you're involved in iniquity, you're premeditating how you can sin against the Lord. You're enjoying that sin, and you don't care what the consequences are in the end. Does that make sense? That's where these people were. It wasn't just a sinful attitude. It just wasn't an attitude of transgression. They were fully engulfed in their sinful lifestyle. It was iniquity. No care for what it caused, the harm that it caused, or what the consequences were for any of it. And he says, listen, this is the condition of the people. They're so enthralled, they're so overtaken by their iniquity, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. That word means to be flaunted. Think about that for a moment. There's no shame, no shame in what they're doing. It's just out there for all of the world to see. The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed the evil deeds of Samaria. They deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. They're they're kind of like being attacked. They're falling apart from the inside and the outside, right? Look at this. It says, verse two, they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Does that give you reason for pause this morning to hear that? They do not consider that I remember all of their evil in the book of Revelation chapter 20, you can read this later, write it down. says that when it's time for judgment at the great white throne, that God opens up these books and that the dead are judged according to what was written in these books. That there's a record of wrongs that are being kept. And I don't know about you, but that that frightens, that terrifies me to think of that. That every word that I spoke, that I spoke out of a wrong, evil heart is being recorded. Everything that I did or everything that I touched or everything that I desired, every evil thought or wicked thought that I have, it's being recorded somewhere. That terrifies me to think of. And God says, they don't realize that I remember their evil. The word remember means I meditate upon this. I consider this. I see it. I know their sinfulness. They believe or they think that I can't see or that I'm not watching or that I'm not taking note, but I see everything. Kind of like Santa, right? Right? That's a scary thought, right? Making a list, taking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. He knows. He knows, right? God knows. You know, I remember in the first grade, Washington Elementary School. Anyone went to Washington Elementary School here? Anyone? Oh, just a few people. All right. All right. There we go. Washington Elementary School. Uh, Mrs. Williams was my first grade teacher. And I remember the first time I had my name written on the board and how devastated I was. I think that might have been the only time in all of my grade school years that my name was written on the board. You know your name gets written on the board when you do something wrong? And what I did is I jumped over a chair to get into the corner, and my name got written on the board, and I don't think I could concentrate the rest of the day because there my name was staring at me all day that I had done something wrong. Right? Now, imagine your name in this book, and next to it all of the evil deeds that you've done. You know, if you are really bad, you get check marks next to your name. You remember that? And there were some kids, I mean, it to the whole board up there, right? With check marks. But your name written in a book somewhere, oh, liar, thief, lust, greed, anger, bitterness, check, 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 check. See, here's the beautiful thing, though, is although that book exists when you were in Christ, that book might as well not exist. Why? Listen to what it says here. This is in... Colossians chapter two, it'll be on your screen. It says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, having nailed it to the cross. That all of those deeds that were written on that board, when Jesus went to the cross, he took an eraser. The word cancel means to wipe out, to wipe clean, to erase that all of those deeds were erased in that moment. And now those evil, wicked deeds that you did, the scripture says that when you're in Christ, your sin and your lawless deeds, I will remember no more, the Lord says. He says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I've removed your transgressions from you. You have freedom from that weight and from that sin when you're in Christ. But if you're not in Christ, those deeds are still recorded against you. My friend, you can have those deeds erased this morning if you will come to Christ in faith saying, I believe that when you went to the cross, you nailed all of my wrong on that cross. And now you've erased all of my debt. Amen. He's done this for you. He's done this for me. So he says, there, the, I remember your evil and your deeds are surrounding you. The word picture is of a pack of wolves that are surrounding its prey. Think about this just for a second. A pack of wolves enclosing and surrounding their prey. That's what our deeds are doing to us. They're stalking us. The scripture says that our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Jesus warned against this this kind of attitude that the worldliness and the sinfulness and the cares of this life could come in and could actually choke out fruitfulness. This is what he warns against in Luke chapter 21. He says, watch yourselves, check your own hearts, make sure your heart is right, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Make sure that you're ready for the return of Christ and that the cares of this life are not choking you out, that your deeds are not surrounding you, that worldliness is not closing in. He's got such a, a really descriptive description of what the people look like. Now, we're going to see these illustrations in this next portion of text. God's illustrations. He's going to elaborate on the condition. Yes, you're engaged in iniquity. I see your evil deeds. You're stuck because your sins are closing around you. You're being strangled and choked and suffocated by your sinfulness. But now he's going to use these analogies. He's going to use these metaphors of what the people are like. And as we read through these, we need to check our own hearts. Again, this is the scalpel that is on us first. So first one, look at verse 4. They're adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough till it is leavened. So the first one you're going to write down there in your notes is a heated oven. Verse five, one day our king and the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders in the morning, its fire blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers, and their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. So the first analogy is that the people are like a heated oven. And what would happen during these days is that the baker, who was ready to bake or need some dough, he would start up the oven the night before, and he'd get the, the oven nice and raging hot, right? And once it was nice and raging hot, the reason why he'd do this is he wanted the sides and the bottom and the top of the oven to all be hot, right? Because it made for a, a more evenly baked piece of bread or loaf. So he'd get it really hot, and then he would close up the oven for the night, And then because there was no oxygen, because oxygen was cut off from the fire, the fire would smolder and would die, but the oven would remain hot because it was all closed up. And in the meantime, he'd allow the dough and the leaven to rise. He would allow it to permeate the loaf. And in the morning when he awoke, the baker would open back up the oven, and because oxygen is pouring in, To the oven, the fire would begin to roar and to rage once more. The whole oven would be hot. He'd put the bread in and he would bake the bread. What God is saying is that my people are like that oven, just waiting for the opportunity for the oxygen to come in and to burn with lust over their sin. Right? And he says, they're just waiting for the opportunity to spark back to life, to spark back into their sinfulness. And the warning there for us is to make sure that we really put out the fire completely. Right? And here's the trouble is so many of us, we say we've left the world, but we leave little roots back there. Don't we? It's like we come into this relationship with the Lord and we're in this marriage covenant with the Lord, but we're operating as though we have a prenuptial agreement. And in case this doesn't work out, I'm going to go right back to my old life, back to my old sin. I'm not going to cut off my old friends. I'm not going to cut off, you know, my, my old lifestyles. I'm not going to close out those old accounts that I should have closed out. I'm not going to close down those Facebook or Twitter accounts that I still am tempted by. I, just in case this doesn't work out, my walk with the Lord, I have that to come back to you. It's like the fire that you leave smoldering in the oven. And as soon as the door opens up, that fire begins to rage back to life. Why? Because you never put it out completely. Shame on you. This isn't a game. You can't flirt with the Lord like that. You're either for him or against him. You either have your hands to the plow or you're looking over your shoulder. What's it going to be? Are you like that roaring oven? Now here, I want you to understand this too. That God promised that he would not judge the world a second time by a flood. He gave the sign of a rainbow to Noah, didn't he? I'm not going to judge the world a second time with water, but the scripture does declare that he will judge the world a second time. And how will that happen? It'll be by fire. And what you need to understand this morning is that if you play with that fire long enough, you're going to burn. You will be burned. There is no escape from that. So are you like that oven? Do you have pieces? Do you have tentacles to the old life? Roots that are still, you know, you're just, all you got to do is go back and water them. All you got to do is open back up the door to the oven and that fire is going to come right back to life. Are you that person? You have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom? Look at here, it goes on. Look at what it says here in verse 8. Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, mixes himself with peoples. Ephraim's like a cake not turned. Strangers devour its strength and it knows it not. So the second thing here is that there's a a mixed cake. And God warned the children of Israel when they came into the promised land, do not go around intermarrying or marrying from the peoples of the world. Because when you do, the sons and the daughters of those people are going to lead your hearts astray. You're going to begin to worship like they worship. You're going to begin to have shrines in your homes like they have shrines in their homes. They will infiltrate you. The scripture says this, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. The scripture says this, bad company corrupts good morals. The scripture says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Actually, let's read this together. That's the one we can read together. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Again, you left those seeds, the roots in the old life. You mixed yourself. You're not a pure cake. You've brought in some of the worldliness into your life. You've allowed it to penetrate, right? You've allowed that leaven to take over. Are you really truly walking with the Lord the way you should? Now, the analogy goes a little bit further there. Look at it again, verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with peoples, with the peoples of the world, intermarried, allowed them to influence their life. Ephraim is a cake not turned. The way that they would cook these cakes is kind of like a pancake today, right? And so they would have the batter and they'd put the batter on a hot stone. And when it was cooked on the bottom, they would flip it and they would cook it on the other side. Now, if you're like me, you've And this is, Lord, this is a confession to you as well. You've maybe been in life before where you go to Costco and you get that big tub of cookie dough and you have every intention of cooking those cookies, but those cookies never see the light of the oven, right? Because you ate all the dough. You can eat cookie dough, but how many of you have ever eaten pancake batter? Yes, some of you have eaten pancake batter raw? Really? You must be really hungry. That is not appetizing to me at all. So the analogy here is the bottom of the cake has been cooked properly, but it never got flipped. It's lukewarm. It's not finished. It's not completely devoted to the Lord. That's what he's saying here. That's what this metaphor means. Hasn't been flipped. Now remember the warning in Revelation chapter 3 to the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the church age in which we are living, Jesus says this, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold, would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you or vomit you from my mouth. Daily, we need to check our hearts to make sure that we are really, truly there with God, that we're not living a lukewarm life. That does not please the Lord. If you were cold, at least you would know you need to be warmed up. If you were hot, you know, I could do something with that. But because you're lukewarm, I've got no use for you. I've got no use for you. What if in within our marriages, what if we treated our marriages the way we treat our relationship with the Lord? Last week, the women went to a women's conference. What if... When Sarah came home after that weekend retreat, she comes to the door and I go up and I greet her and I give her a huge hug and I say, oh, I miss you so much. I'm so glad you're back. And I just want you to know that while you were gone, I was 99% faithful to you. (laughs) Right? What is she going to think? But don't we do this with the Lord all the time? What if we were as devoted to the Lord as we are our sports teams? That should be convicting for some of us, right? I mean, we have jerseys and we have posters and we have shirts and we even fly flags, don't we? We fly flags. But when it comes to the Lord, are we that devoted to the things of God as we are to our team? We're like a cake that isn't turned. It's not finished all the way. It's not completely done yet. It's not completely surrendered, not completely given over yet. And that does not please the Lord.